What's going on, everybody? And welcome into the 84th episode of the Crazy One Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Stephen Gates, and this is the show where we talk about creativity, leadership, design, and everything else that helps to empower creative people. Now, you can listen to all the shows, get the show notes, and a whole lot more. Just head over to thecrazyone.com. That's the crazy and the number one dot com. Make sure that you hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform to get the episodes as soon as they come out. And if you have any questions or you want more content like this, be sure to follow me on Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn as I'm posting all the time and happy to answer any questions. Now, I've got a new audio setup. I I figured, you know what, look, it's been three years and 83 episodes, 84 now, so I guess maybe it's time to actually invest in some better equipment, so we'll see if this uh, actually improves the show any or if this is just me doing this for my own ego, but hopefully it makes... A little bit of a difference. I don't know. We'll see. I'm also incredibly curious to see how people feel about this show today. Because this episode, especially by the title, probably is not one of those things you think to yourself, like, hey, this is something I'm really interested in. Like, ethics. Like, wow, that sounds like a topic I'd really, really be interested in. But this is interesting because I I think that this is one of those emerging trends that I'm seeing that we need to start to talk about. We need to start to think about and this sort of this episode really started for me with it was a conversation I'd had in the beginning of the year. I'd flown down, I'd spent two weeks in Sydney, Australia, and and had a dinner one night uh, with Jurgen Spangl, who is the, probably one of the best design leaders I know. He's the head of design at Atlassian, just super smart, super tuned in, like one of those people you you just feel smarter whenever you're around. And I think that you know we started to have this conversation around design ethics, around how the industry had matured to the point where this had started to become something we needed to talk about. But I think also it sort of feels like before we even get into this episode, I need to define what I mean when we talk about ethics because I think that can be a really – it can be a dense word. It can be a confusing word. It can be a word that means a lot of things. So for the purpose of this episode, for the purpose of what I want to talk about – what I think this is like this is not about good and bad, right? Like that's just the definition of straight line ethics. This is not about doing like right by your customers, right? Like ethical practices, like how you handle data. Like it's not that. It's not about how people act, right? Like a code of ethics, like the way that you show up and the your kind of personal code that you use. What I want to talk about is understanding and thinking about the big and small effects of our work. Right, Because I think especially if you work in digital, especially for a lot of what just creativity has become in this kind of moment in time, it's having an impact on the world that I think a lot of people aren't thinking about. And I think you know it really comes really as a byproduct out of the maturation of our industry, right? Because if you think about it, as you go through any process, and especially as you go through kind of a design or creative process, you go through these different stages. And so, like, for instance, like if we're going to talk about digital design, we sort of started with that very basic web design, right? Like, just being able to put up any sort of a page, being able to do any sort of, like, just put text out into the universe and someone can see it, right? Like, just the super basic things that are there. And then we started to get a little bit more complicated. We started to bring in colors. We started to bring in animation. We started to bring in a little more complexity and sound and, and things like that, right? So we, we started to bring a little bit more complexity to it. 
Well, then we sort of started to transcend that because then we had different form factors. We had all these other types of devices and then kind of like responsive design was born. And then out of that, then it's like, okay, well, now this is a scale and a complexity that we need more data. We need more dynamics. So then we had responsive data-driven design. And then we've had design systems and on and on and on, right? But each sort of thing stacks one on top of another. But I think the reason we need to talk about this is because just it's become an increasingly important issue with the proliferation of technology and the way that it's being bound to our lives can affect people in super profound ways. And, and I'm going to give you two examples. And, and this was sort of what has had me thinking about this for a while, because there, there are two examples that always come to my mind of what is the power of what we can do, but also maybe what are some of the unintended consequences of what we can do. The first one is is a very, very popular game that even some of my friends now to this day still continue to play, which is Pokemon Go, right? Like it, It's an amazing mobile game. It's a, it's a lot of fun. Like I got into it a little bit, not a ton. I know some people who like have multiple accounts for them and their kids, and whenever we travel all over the world, they're running off and, and playing it. And but, but for the uninitiated, for those of you who don't know what it is, like it, this is a mobile game that gives that user, the player, the chance to feel like a Pokemon trainer, right? And, and the trainers go around and they're these little creatures and you train them and capture them and interact with them. The difference here was that what they did was they basically overlaid the game over the real world. So you would go around in different locations and you would actually have to travel to be able to go in and find these little creatures, catch them, do things like that, right? So not only was it sort of breakthrough in the category, it was it was breakthrough in the, in the gameplay and a lot of things like that, but it also was, it was a real business success story, right? Because I, I think that, you know, from the numbers that I've seen, and again, I, I can't verify that these are completely true, but from what I've seen, it's profited over $3 billion by the end of last year. And that's what I said, and I still know a ton of people that are playing this game, but three three billion billion, like that, that is absolutely going to get a lot of people to, to sit up and pay attention. Right, because it's fun, it's simple, it it seems pretty innocuous, and and in the state of for this conversation, I don't really think that you would think that this would be a game that would have a lot of ethical issues, right? But but this is what I'm talking about because it does, and as you start to look below the surface, as you start to pay attention to more again, or what are some of the unintended consequences of the things we design, it starts to get really interesting it starts to get scary and it starts to get concerning so just in the case of pokemon go right there is a number of things you probably saw in the news right like it was distracting drivers who were playing while they were driving people were getting to accidents people were going off the road and, and again that that's just irresponsible use of the game but you know i think that you would see that some people actually were getting mugged or were getting hurt because the game was bringing them into dangerous locations or they were going to do dangerous things in the hopes of, again, trying to catch these Pokemon, that you know you had a real disruption then to public infrastructure because there were suddenly accidents, there were people where there weren't supposed to be, like you needed resources, like there are a lot of those sort of things. But I think it actually probably even got worse than that, right? Because I think if you really start to pay attention, that you know in many cases, the places where some of these creatures would appear, they actually didn't get consent from those locations to even be included in the game. So now all of a sudden you have a bunch of people who are there who are acting and doing all these sort of things in a way that you weren't in expecting. Um, I think that in, men in some cases, whether it was intentional or not, 
the game excluded certain neighborhoods, which I think were mainly populated by racial minorities. So again, was that a decision or was it not? If not, you know, again, there's something there. But you know, I think that the worst thing that I saw was a um, Pokemon can that ones that were released in honestly offensive ways. There was one in particular that was a poison gas Pokemon that was found in the Holocaust Museum in Washington D.C. That again, I think you can sort of understand why that would be really bad for a lot of different reasons. But that's why I said. But those are just sort of like behavioral issues. But then, you know, probably a few months ago, I was in Los Angeles and was watching the news, and and I saw something that was a far more disturbing trend that had much deeper and much more longer-lasting effects than anything that I had really seen or heard of before. And I was sitting in my hotel room, and a news story had come on about this new emerging psychological problem called Snapchat dysmorphia. And what this is is that increasingly for a number of people – that sort of line between the smartphone fantasy and the real world are getting blurred. I, I think you see this sort of shifting with beauty ideals. Like a lot of these sort of things of what happens whenever you apply filters to reality and then present it as real starts to take a real toll on people. And I think that, you know, the thing with this is that these Snapchat dysmorphia are people who want to permanently alter the way that they look, their faces or things like that, to match what they see in apps like Snapchat. Like, people actually go in and want to look like their Snapchat filter. So they want bigger eyes, they want sunken cheeks, they want they want these sort of exaggerated and cleaned up proportions that they've seen in real life, that they have presented in real life for a really long time. Because the thing is that they're getting accustomed to seeing their faces in these digitally altered ways. And they're forgetting that the images on their smartphones aren't reality. And that there's a big difference between, you know, sort of fixing something on your nose, your chin to look smaller on camera, and then actually doing it by moving a bone or tissue with surgery. Like, it's gone so far recently as I've even seen some models and influencers who will post what I feel like are almost shocking photos of what it looks like whenever their faces aren't filtered. Some of them have had scars, some of them very, very significant things. But but the level that we are going to to chase this sort of false ideal is becoming, you know, honestly for me, pretty scary. Because, I mean, if we just stop and think about this, the fact is that there is now a psychological disease named after an app, right? Like that should highlight the magnitude of the power of design. It it highlights both the opportunity, but then the responsibility that is increasingly coming with the moment that we're in. And these are just two apps that have issues, right? There are countless more out there that I think probably have really similar problems. So what I wanted to do with this episode today is just to, I guess, briefly, partially have a discussion around this, raise awareness around this, but start to look at how do you actually start to think about and approach ethical design? Because like I said, in many cases, I I don't think that the creators of Pokemon Go, I don't think that the creators of Snapchat ever considered that these sort of things would be happening. I don't think that they set out to do things that were going to be able to kind of have these sort of effects on people. But I think that there are a number of individual things that probably got us there. Some of which are issues that we've talked about in the past on these shows. I think some of them are a little bit different, but that's why for today I want to focus really on that, the importance of ethical design 
in your work. And and I would also argue that if you're sitting there thinking, oh, I don't think this affects my work. I don't think that, you know, what, what I'm doing would be a part of this. I, let's start by sort of arguing that you're wrong, right? Because I would probably argue that for most products out there in the world right now, right, there is some ethical issue with probably with what it is you're doing. Because that's what I said. Like, if you think you don't need to worry about this in your creative process because your product doesn't have any ethical issues, I, I, I would disagree. And, and I think that anytime you're shaping negative behavior, anytime you're shaping things that get people to do certain things that may not be the best for them, I think you have an ethical problem. I think that, you know, some of these were issues whenever I was in the financial industry that fundamentally we rewarded bad behavior. We rewarded you for spending money by giving you points and airline miles and a lot of things that were not in people's best interest that in many cases, you know, we were sort of over we were willing to overlook some of those issues. And that was a real problem. And I think that in many cases, you know, to figure out if you have a problem or not, I don't know that you can really be sure if you have a problem or not until you've taken the time to look at your product really through an ethical lens, right? Because, you know, the one of the things that, that I guess easily comes to mind for me that I think could also be looped into this would be the issue of accessibility. I can't tell you how many teams I work with where, you know, I I try to work with them to make sure that their work adheres to ADA standards. So that this is so that people who have hearing disabilities, visual disabilities, other disabilities are able to use digital products exactly the same way anybody else would be, right? But I, I think, it, you know, it's amazing to me how many of those teams seem to view this as a chore, right? They, there is no empathy, no thought, and no, you know, caring, honestly, for how this affects the people who would really need it, that it's an afterthought, it's a pain, and it's this sort of thing, right? And so that, for me, sort of highlights the core problem here, right? Because I think in many cases for us, and this is probably true for a lot of us in general, we're all about doing the right thing until it's uncomfortable, until it takes work, until it means doing something a little bit extra. I think that's true of us as individuals, and then by extension is true of us as companies. But right, I mean, this is about, honestly, like how do we almost develop the ability to look into the future to see how our work is going to positively or negatively affect people? Because we're in this time when ethics needs to become a step just like any other in our creative process. We have a certain level of power. We have a certain level of responsibility. We have a certain level of thinking that goes into this stuff. And, you know, look, you take the time to be sure that there are no bugs, that there are no mistakes. You QA your work to make sure it's the best it can be. I, I would argue that as we look at these sort of issues around ethics, it, it should be no different, right? You have to take the time to make your products and the people who use them the best they can be. It, it's no longer about if you can do something, Right. It's about should you do something because we're in a time where we can create and, and you know mold experiences, we can shape culture, we can do a lot of very, very significant things. But out of that, like I said, starts to come larger issues that you will start to see in more mature fields like medicine or, or other things like that where this sort of like do no harm approach needs to be thought through. As I sort of sat down and thought about this, I, I think that there are really sort of five areas, five things that I think every person and every team needs to start doing, needs to start thinking about, because I think that these are the things that lead to these sort of ethical problems. And like I said, I think in many cases, they are not done intentionally. But but in the same point, I will also argue, as with most people, as when processes like this, inaction is also an action, right? Like just simply saying that it is too hard, it is too complicated, it is not something we want to take on is an action. And I think a lot of this is, you know, it sounds incredibly obvious, 
But the best way to tackle a problem is to start at the beginning. And I think that whenever you start the beginning for this, this is really a two-part approach. The first part is, you know, just the simple thing of like, do you have systems and processes in place to identify and correct ethical issues? Is this even a conversation? Is it anything you're thinking about, looking at? Is it a part of your process at all, right? And, and I think so there's just the basic part of let's raise the awareness and get this in there so it's part of the conversation. The second part is then how those systems and processes are brought to life, right? Because I think we all know this. Any process is only as good as its execution. It's only as good as how you internalize it and really bring it to life. Because the worst processes, the ones that are the least effective, are the ones that people do it because someone told them to. They, they do it because there's a list that they has been put in front of them. And if they want to keep their job or do whatever it is, then, then that's what you have to do. And everyone sort of rolls their eyes and, and thinks it's this real hindrance. But it's how it's brought to life and how it's embraced that makes the difference, right? So I think in this case, what I would argue for is almost a pre-mortem. And that's where you sit down with your team and talk through possible problems that would make this product, make this project, make this feature, make it whatever it is that you're working on, an ethical failure, right? Like what would be a behavior we would create? What would be an outcome that we would not want? And then to actually work backwards from that to the root cause of that possible failure to see how you can avoid it. How do you not shape that behavior? How do you not sort of put that into culture or shape that into being? Because what you want to do is reduce that potential ethical risk enough so that you think you can move forward with the project, right? And so I've talked about this in the past. You know, these episodes are not created in a vacuum. I'm not like some great Oz who comes up with all these sort of insights. I do a bunch of research and, and try to find the best thinking that is out there on the subject. And I have to admit, whenever it comes to ethical design, there is a whole lot of not much out there, which I think is going to be real concerning to a lot of people real soon. But the best work that I was able to find was from a tech ethicist whose name is Shannon Valor. And she had a great list of what I thought were like really good sort of pre-mortem questions to be able to think about it. And so whenever you do a pre-mortem, the thing you need to sit down with your team and do is say, look, it's just what I said a minute ago, right? Like, how could this project fail for ethical reasons? What would be the most likely combined causes of that ethical failure? Like, what are the blind spots that would lead us into those problems? Because again, when we think about Snapchat, when we think about Pokemon Go, those come out of blind spots, right? They come out, they came out of data systems or things that did not account for certain ethical problems. And so again, then they just simply, if you know, honestly ended up with these problems. I think you need to ask yourself, like, why would we fail to act? Like, why wouldn't we want to try to stop this kind of problem? Why or how, like, could and would we choose the wrong action? And lastly, and this goes back to a little bit of, of the first part of this process, what systems, processes, checks, fail-safes, like whatever the hell you want to call it, what are those things we can put in place to reduce that failure risk? Because in many cases, it's what I said, is it these are unintended consequences. These are behaviors that are shaped. These are workarounds that people create. These are things that people do whenever a whole bunch of little pieces come together to make the experience. And that very much leads me into where I think that the next source of the problem comes from, right? Because pretty much every company in the world is burdened with silos, right? Like those invisible walls between different divisions, those invisible walls between teams, those things that are barriers in our behavior, in our thinking, in our action. And like I said, you know, we've talked about just, you know, for teams in general, 
that that is such a major problem that they will only think as far as the project or the goal in front of them because this is my piece this is my silo this is what i'm concerned about how it comes together is somebody else's problem that that's a general problem because that sort of approach hinders stops kills suffocates big picture thinking it suffocates innovation and it can be a big reason honestly why i think also ethical problems happen because the teams are going through and you're just doing what you've been told, right? Like the project moves from that spark of inspiration to the reality of execution. Things comes up, things are changed, and they evolve. But the problem is, is that no one is watching. Nobody's thinking about the big picture because those silos are keeping them from seeing the bigger problem, from seeing those bigger things. That's why I said, I, I think as, as we look at those examples, I think that it was probably a lot of independent decisions by independent teams who thought they were making the best decisions they possibly could. That only in the combination, only in the launch of it, whenever it came together, whenever the big picture was revealed, whenever the behavior was created, did you sit there and go, oh shit, I think we did something that we maybe didn't necessarily mean to. So I think that silos silos are just the death of kind of everything for me. But, but I think especially in this particular case, it is that problem, right? Whenever you say, I'm, I'm only responsible for this little piece in front of me. I'm only responsible for thinking this far. Nobody watches the big picture. Nobody thinks about the, about the bigger part of what's going on. We really run into these sort of issues. And again, it's sort of action by an action. So here, the, the things that I think you need to ask yourself, and again, I'm, I'll put the list of what these all are in the show notes to be able to kind of make this easier to go back and digest. But, but you know, what you need to do is you need to ask yourself, right? Like what just simply, what's the big picture here? Like, like what am I helping to build? Because yes, even if you feel like you're a little cog in a much bigger machine, you still have an ethical responsibility to ask these things, to make sure that they're being looked after, to think about these things, to say like, look, what contribution is my work making and are there ethical risks that I might need to think about? Are there things that it's like, look, you know, I've been told to do this, but I feel like there could be an ethical problem here. And if there are risks, are they worth it, right? Like given what the potential benefits are. Because again, you know, you can create some of these problems and, and they are, they're in all different sizes. Some are very innocuous. Some are things that people can sort of live with and adapt with. And then you need to decide, is that major enough? But like I said, if there are ones that are sending people into traffic that are creating distracted driving, that are creating offensive situations, that are causing people to be driven into plastic surgery, those are ones that I feel like are very, very different conversations. But I guarantee you they're not ones that are really sort of part of any of those project briefs. And I think that's the problem. Because, you know, a lot of this comes down to the third point, which like it, it's... It's easy to think that people only use your product the way you want them to, right? We all sort of have this omnipotent feeling like we've designed it a certain way, we've done it a certain way, and so that's the way that people are going to use it. I've often felt like whenever you go into user testing, whenever you go in to do live testing on a product, it's not a, it's not a one-way conversation, right? It's it's not there is only one way of doing things. The the systems are so complicated, the way the things that we do are so varied that it's not a one-way dialogue, right? It, it's a conversation. And it this isn't a set of instructions, right? And and I think that this is why, for me, it, it continues to be so important because of issues like this for why customers are kept at the center, why they are kept as a source of truth for what's going on. Because then there's a clear way to come back to the fact that this is a conversation, right? That this is not 
a, a one-way dialogue and that everybody uses it the way that we think. Because that's why I said is I nobody, I'm sure, said, hey, let's go send people into traffic or do whatever that is. But, you know, I think it's, that's why I said I, I'm a huge believer in that we need to get out. We need to watch people use our product. You need to see them without guidance, without prompting, to see the reality of the reality of how they actually interact with things the, to see if that, that idea that you have in your head matches reality. And that's why I said, because for me, design, design is always a conversation, right? Your design is saying something to people. It is communicating something to them. And, you know, whether you intend to do it or not, I think that you, everybody put subtle cues to invite users to engage with your work in certain ways instead of others, right? This is that this is what usability design like we put a lot of effort into trying to lead people down paths, but it's these messages that the user is receiving that they say something, and that what it says is important. That it can create behaviors, and that if they buy into it, if they really think about it, those cues like we've talked about already can be very powerful. Can elicit behaviors. Can can shape ways of thinking. Can shape self image. Like again, these are very powerful things. And the hard part here is that whenever I'm thinking about oh, I'm going to create something, oh, I'm going to do a button, oh, I'm going to you know, create some interaction, I'm going to do something. All that we're thinking about is like, how do we make it as sticky as possible? How do we make it as usable as possible? How do we, and that's what, that's what we should be doing, right? But it's those unintended consequences that I think sometimes also need to be thought about. So here, the questions for me, as, as we think about this sort of discussion, as we think about this dialogue, are things like, what could somebody infer from the design about how it should be used? Right. And, and again, this is more as it goes to behavior, psychology, things like that, because when we start to look at that, like it, there is a discussion of how do we want people to use it? How don't we want people to use it? You know, do your design choices and affordances reflect those expectations? And are you perverting, you know, creating other kind of use legitimate uses of this product or creating behaviors that are byproducts that we don't necessarily want? And so I think like it, it's just understanding that this is no longer a button. It's no longer just an interface. You know, we are shaping people's financial futures. We are shaping their psychology. We are shaping you know, a lot of very profound things that affect happiness, that affect lifestyle, that, that affect, you know, future generations and a lot of things like that. I think that's why you're starting to see all these conversations around the relationship between children and technology, people and technology, social media and people, social media and wellness, like these are issues that are coming up because for me, this is the wave that is starting to break around ethical design because we've just been doing things because we could and we haven't been stopping to say, should we? But in many cases for me, and, and the way that I'll come back to about this is that the best teams that I've been a part of and the best teams that I've seen work will actively try to break what they create. They try to break their ideas. They try to find the weak spots to push each other to do their best work, right? Because they are closest to it. And, and I think like you can apply a very similar concept when it comes to ethics, that once you build something, you think like, look, you know, and you, I'm really proud of this. I think this is somebody that that's, you know, that this is something people are really going to love. You need to ask someone to try it, to break it. And, and honestly, to prove that it isn't great. And I think this, this is really important because, as the creator of something, as somebody who is the designer of something, and I suffer from this just as much, it's hard to see the flaws in your work when you've been so close to it for a long time, especially, especially 
if it is something that you are proud of. If it is a design that you feel like has been the best you've done in your career, if it's something that you've really been proud of the team about, if it's something about that, you tend to only see it in the best light. You don't see it for what it is. You don't really press. You don't really look at these sort of things, right? So I think that's why I've seen this so many times, right? Like it's not unheard of for new employees, new customers, new, like somebody with fresh eyes to come in and find the flaws, the bugs, the inefficiencies, the inconsistencies almost immediately that the rest of the team that's been looking at it every day has missed because you work with it all the time. You, you start to almost see it for what you think it should be, not what it actually is. And that's a real issue, right? But, but I, by asking people who haven't been involved to come in, to look at the work, to look at it through an ethical lens, this is going to help you reduce the risk of that sort of ethical negligence. It's going to have people come in and say, well, yeah, know what? I would actually start to do this all the time. And you know, what? I'm actually not sure that that would be a really good thing for me. Or I'm not sure that that would be a good behavior or that that would be productive. So here again, you need to ask yourself things like, you know, what are those ethical pressure points here? Like, what are those places where we feel like we could have ethical problems? Like, you know, what are the trade-offs between you know, value and ideals. Like, you know, have we made them the right way? Because, you know, sometimes the business will just simply overrule logic. And whenever that happens, great things don't tend to happen. Like, what happens if we widen that, that, widen that circle of possible users to include some people we may not have even thought about? You know, and is this solution the only one? And is it the best one? But that's why I said is to look at things at fresh eyes constantly, constantly try to break it, constantly come back to find its weak spots, to find its problems, do it with the work, do it with the execution, do it with the ethics, like do this with all of us. So I, I think that's the part of it for me is that for really high performing teams, these sort of mindsets of doing pre-mortems, breaking down silos, understanding the design is a conversation, right? Like trying to break and break through and break down your work and to be able to push on that. They, they're doing a lot of these things already. And, and if you're not doing this, these are the sort of behaviors that you need to start to work on. But it's just simply the addition of understanding the behavioral components, the ethical components to this, not just simply the executional. And that sort of brings me to my last thought around this, which is like, if you don't get the answer right, being able to go back through your process is crucial, right? And I think that for many teams, this is why we do postmortems, right? It's the ability to go back and look at what did we do? How did it do? How did we do? But, you know, for me, most postmortems are only done to review process and to find inefficiencies that would benefit the company. Rarely is it done to benefit the customer. Then most postmortems I'm a part of is how could the teams work better? How could we communicate better? How could we improve our documentation? We aren't we aren't going back and doing a design postmortem to defend the design decisions we made, the ethical decisions we've made, to to look at this, to see how it is performing, to really say, look, did we do the right thing? We just simply assume that whatever we launched is right because it launched. And that's not really always the case, right? And, and I think this can be really effective because you can focus on the finished work that's in a real state and look at it in the cold light of day. Because whenever you're in the process, again, you tend to be working towards that ideal or you tend to be working on your piece. But in the postmortem, you can look at this and be able to say, okay, look, in its totality, in the way that it is launched, in the way that it is manifested in the world, not what is going to be 2.0, not what are we working on, not what is in the roadmap, what is in market today, how is it doing? What are we looking at? How is this, like, what's going on with this? And for me, then it, it's starting to ask again, these sort of questions, like, are there limitations to this product? Like, what are the trade-offs that we made? And were they the right ones? 
like, you know, does our product risk being misused? And if so, you know, what are the things that we could do to potentially mitigate that? Are there users who are going to have trouble with this product? Like now that we've seen it in this form, maybe there are things that we didn't necessarily account for or think about that were like, oh, crap, you know what? This is going to be this is going to be an issue. And I think like how probable is it that the good and bad effects are likely to happen? And again, have a discussion around the magnitude of those and, and your willingness to to honestly just sort of live with them. Because all of this, and, and that's why I said, is, is I think at the core of this for me, why I don't think this should be a stretch for a lot of teams. I don't think this should be a stretch for a lot of designers is that if you want to change culture, if you want to improve your work, the behaviors that we're talking about either should be on the way to being in place or should already be in place. But, but change is an investment. I mean, you've heard me talk and countless times before about you know, how change is like falling in love. That's a lot of little things that add up to something big. And in this case, you know, ethics is an interesting thing. And, and, I, and that was why I sort of wanted to define the word in the beginning, because I'm always amazed how much money, time, effort, things like this, right? Like companies will put into it and will invest in cultural initiatives, corporate retreats, uh, well-being days, like you know, and whatever else it is, right? But whenever it comes to like ethics, whenever it comes to thinking about their consumers, the well-being of their consumers, how many of them just simply will not spend a penny to do that? And there seems to be this sense, it, whenever I talk to a lot of designers and whenever I talk to a lot of teams, because this is an issue that's been on my mind for a little bit, I seem to get this sense from a lot of people that if you're a good person, then you're going to build a good and ethical product. I think that sounds very altruistic. It sounds almost a little even Pollyanna to me that like, oh, if you're a good person, good things you know, will be the result. The problem is, is that you start to look at this. And like I said, the evidence overwhelmingly proves that that's not the case. That if we are not thinking about this because of either corporate barriers, because of our own barriers, because it's just more work or, or whatever it is, right? Like ethics needs to be something you learn about. You need to build resources and systems of support. You need to recruit for it. You need to incentivize people who embody it, who practice it, who invest in it. it it's also something that you need to do for the right reasons. Because again, I think that, you know, I see so many cultural changes, so many teams that want to change because some executive said it, because they feel like it's the right thing to do. Just because there is some thing, right? And they're not doing it for the right reason. They're not doing it because they believe it. They're not doing it because they genuinely want it. And, and I think especially ethics to me is something that, that is so disposable for so many people, right? Because you can't go into this process thinking that you're going to make money or recruit the best people and that that's why you're going to do it. Because the reality is, and I can tell you because I've seen it so many times, is that you're going to abandon it the second you find a more efficient way to achieve those goals. The second you think you can rationalize why you don't need to do this, why you don't need to think about this. Because here's my thing, right? If a company that you are working for, want to go work for, or whatever it is, right? Like if, if they're saying that they're going to take ethics seriously, if they're going to say that they're going to take this ethical design seriously, ask them a few really hard questions. You know, like ask them things like how open are they to accepting restraint and accountability? Restraint especially is a big one. You know, like how, how much are they willing to invest in getting ethics right? That's one of the big things that I've learned when I talk to companies when I interview things like that. You know, Cuba Gooding Jr. had it right. Show me the money. If you're going to grow the team, show me the headcount. Show me the budget. Show me where you're doing this. Show me the money that is going towards doing this. Don't talk about how it's initiative. It's somebody's side job about how it's like something somebody's going to get to someday and like, gee, won't that be great whenever it actually happens. Show me the money. Because here's the thing is that at the end of the day, you got to walk your talk. 
and you know push them on this point of there are things like are they willing to get rid of their best people the best performers if those people aren't conducting them in themselves in a way that they should and that's true in a lot of different ways but that's the thing are they willing to walk their talk on doing things like this and it's like i said i think this is i'm i'm hoping that this is a little bit of a canary in the coal mine for people i'm hoping that this starts to raise awareness starts to have a conversation around why ethical design is important why this is an emerging trend but also that people can start to see that it is up to us it is if you have made it this far in this podcast this is an issue that affects you right that it is up to us to think about this to be aware about this to start to push this conversation to start to raise it up to start to check our work to start to do these things because again you know, for the power that we're trying to get, the leadership we're trying to get, all these sort of things that we talk about on this show, that we're in, again, this amazing moment where we have all this possibility that we haven't seen since the Industrial Revolution, that does not come without a cost. And the cost is that we need to be diligent. We need to be thoughtful about what it is we do and about what it is we create. Because whenever we don't, the effects in the blowback can be catastrophic. It'll be catastrophic for your company. It'll be catastrophic for the bottom line. But mostly, it'll be catastrophic for your conscience. Knowing that you may have hurt people, knowing that you may have created things, that you may have done things unintentionally, but that it still happened. But that this is the sort of time and a place that we live in that the conversations and the thinking that we are doing has to be more. We have to answer for more. And again, like most things on the show, that has to start with you. So I hope, like I said, I hope this is a conversation starter. You know, reach out to me on social media. If you, if you think this is something that, that is really a problem, if your company is doing it really well, I want to hear from you. If you think that this is something your company you know wants to work on, where do you where do you start? Let's have that conversation, right? Because again, I, I think that we're not going to do any of this sort of stuff alone. So, you know, again, I, I hope that you you find all this um, useful, right? If you do, I'm always incredibly appreciative. Take a couple seconds, head over to your favorite podcast platform. Leave a review. It, it always kind of brings a lot more people into the show, and I think it's really good. Like I said at the top of the show. So make sure you hit the subscribe button. Get the latest episodes whenever those come out. Head over to thecrazyone.com. That's the crazy number onecom Get the latest articles, podcasts, and, and all that sort of stuff like that. Again, follow me on social media. I, I'm always up for a good conversation. You can like the show on Facebook. Follow me, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, any of those sort of things. Uh, as usual, everybody down in League wants me to remind you that the views here are just my own. They don't represent any of my current or former employers. These are just always my own thoughts. And finally, I say it every time because I mean it every time, but thank you for your time. I'm always incredibly humbled that you want to spend any of what is such an incredibly precious resource with me because I know time is truly the only real luxury and commodity that we have. And finally, you know, I say it every time because I mean it every time. Once again, like, this is not easy work that we are doing. This is stuff that has a lot of consequences that is very, very complicated, and some of these issues are not easy, which is why, as much as ever, it is so important. Stay crazy.